saying. I think it's easy to, to sing a song and sometimes gloss over uh, what, what we just sang. But we just sang, as one church, to God, these words. In my heart and my soul, Lord, I give you control. Consume me from the inside out. Think about that for a minute. Is God in control when, when you're angry? When you're defensive? When his word tells you to do something you don't feel like doing? We should take those words seriously as we sing them to the Lord. And so I would encourage us as, as we sing every week to consider what we sing and to be careful to, to mean what we sing to the Lord. I don't, think, I don't think God takes his worship lightly and I don't think we should sing what we sing to him lightly. And so I was challenged and convicted by that this morning and maybe you will be too. I'm going to read to you this morning Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11 and going down through verse 16, and then we will pray. And he himself, that is a reference to Jesus, and he himself gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And of the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to, a me to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the properly measured working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we come now to ask your blessing on the, the preaching of your word. Lord, we, um, we have prepared our hearts uh, with the reading of your word, we have prepared our hearts with singing, Lord. We have, uh, have worshipped you through uh, those things, and now we come to worship you in hearing from you in your word. Lord, I pray that you would give me um, accuracy in what I say, that, uh, that it would represent what your word means, uh, that my words would, would reflect uh, your words, your heart, your meaning, your desires for your church. Lord, I pray that you would give us um, surrendered hearts that, that believe that you're in control, that are willing to, um, to do what your word says even when we don't feel like it or when we don't want to or whatever the occasion may be for, uh, for disobedience. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us not only soft hearts to obey your word, but, but uh, clear minds and, and ears to understand it, to hear it, to know your truth. Lord, we pray not only for, uh, for us, but we pray for Walla Walla Presbyterian this morning. Lord, we pray that you would give uh, your church there and here uh, a deep desire and love for the gathering. That we would not uh, look at the gathering of your church, which is precious to you, as something obligatory, um, as something in passing, 
as an early morning pit stop on our way to something else, as of low importance, but that we would love to gather as your people, that we would love to sing your praises together, that we would love to pray together, that we would love to hear your word together, and that we would love to go out from here and share the gospel together. But would you do that in us and in them? Would you give your people here and at Walla Walla Presbyterian a high commitment to the local church and a deep love for the gathering? Lord, we pray for our missions partners in Japan who at this point need to go unnamed. Lord, we thank you for what you are doing in them over there. Lord, we thank you for increased opportunities for evangelism. We thank you for just involvement and engagement in community things that Uh, with the hope that they might turn into opportunities for evangelism. We pray that you would give them those opportunities. And Lord, when you provide those opportunities, would you give them boldness to to take those opportunities to share the gospel with people. Lord, uh, Lord, let us not pray that for them and neglect it in ourselves, but but provide for us opportunities to tell people of what you have done, to, to recount what we are thankful for, your might and your power and your salvation, and then to share that with others. Lord, we thank you for uh, the two new believers there who are uh, actively sharing their faith with others. Lord, we pray that they would not lose that zeal to share their faith, and that we would not lose that zeal either, but that we would delight in sharing our faith with others, even if it means we must be rejected. Lord, we we ask that Japan would uh, open borders to the new missionary partners who are supposed to be uh, coming there to live and to work. Lord, we know your timing is perfect and they will be there in your timing. But Lord, we ask that you would uh, pave that way and open those doors so that they might come there and and begin to to learn and to do the work that you are calling them there to do. Lord, we thank you for uh, the uh, Discovery Bible Study and the growth that is coming from there and the influence for the gospel that that is having. So, Lord, we just um, we thank you for them and for their work, and we ask that you would encourage them and give them joy in their work. Lord, um, do much in us as well today as we look to your word, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said this morning, we're going to be wrapping up our series called Blueprint, looking at God's design for the church. And we're going to be looking at what I think is a very important passage here in Ephesians chapter 4 about the nature of the church. Starting next week, believe it or not, we will begin our Advent series. And then uh, December 26th and January 2nd, we'll only have one service on those days, but I'm really excited about those days because we're going to, the elders have been working on asking the question, you know, okay, Jesus has given the church its mission. How, How are we living that out? How has God uniquely gifted Trinity to be about the mission of Christ in the world. What is our vision? What are our values? And so uh, they're not going to be big departures at all from who Trinity already is, but we're excited to kind of share with you what we've been working on, some language we want to use frequently and often, and maybe some values that will shape who we are as a church and the ministries that we do. And so I'm really excited about those two Sundays. That's where we're going. But today I want to ask the question, how does the church grow? How does a church grow? It's a big question. It's an important question. It's a question that people care much about. And in Christian circles, it's big business. I don't know if your Facebook feed looks like mine, but mine is filled with advertisements on buying this series, this program, this coaching, this playbook, and overnight, you can double the size of your church. You can triple your giving. You can do all of these things. 
There's big money if you can answer the question, how does a church grow in a way that people, are, uh, that people like? I went to christianbook.com and I searched for church growth. Now, I'm sure that not all of the results are exactly related to that topic, and I did not sort through them all. But the, the, the search church growth at christianbook.com resulted in 5,352 titles. I think the desire comes from really, really good motives, usually. In fact, if I could just be really transparent, I think most often the desire comes from really, really good motives from the church. But if there's a danger place in the motive, it's usually in the pastor or the leadership. It's really, really easy to think that my security, financial security, future security, job security, is connected to the growth of the church, when really it's connected to God's provision. So it's tempting. It's tempting to want to answer this question as a pastor from wrong motives sometimes. Usually churches, though, have really, really good motives. They want to see the kingdom grow. They want to see saints discipled. They want to see uh, Christians or, or, or people become Christians. Almost always it's motivated by good things, and so I'm not critical of that. But here's the thing. I think that Scripture answers the question. And I think that largely what we see today is not the, the answer that Scripture gives. Because the, scripture, the answer that Scripture gives, it's not the easy answer, and it's certainly not the popular answer. Part of the reason for this is I think it's not hard to grow a church. We'll come back to that. Before we look at the biblical answer, though, of how, we get, how, we, we, how, how God says the church grows, I want us to maybe examine a little bit, particularly of American history, to see where we've gotten in our modern culture. And in order to understand where the church is today on this matter, we kind of have to understand really not only the history of what has happened in the church in America, but we have to understand what has happened technologically in America. See, what we're really good at doing these days is, is reverse engineering. Somebody else comes out with a product that we like, and in order to understand it, we take it apart. I mean, kids have been doing this for, for decades, right? That what kid, uh, you know, I grew up in a different era, VCRs broke often. What kid didn't take apart a VCR going, how does this Hummer work? I did. I learned about lots of parts inside, but none of it helped me understand how it worked. We like to take things apart and understand how they work. And the history of America is a history of what we call great awakenings. Some say there are three, some say there are four. I'm only going to mention three here. But, but the great awakenings are periods of revival in America's history where the gospel spread and people were repenting and getting saved and the church was growing and God was doing amazing things. And out of a good desire, we go, I want that to happen. How did that happen in the first place? And so the first Great Awakening was during the 1730s and 1740s in colonial America. The likes of Jonathan Edwards and, and others uh, who, who, upon preaching the gospel, saw great response to their ministries. Edwards was also run out of a church and took to horseback, uh, going to Native Americans, sharing the gospel with them. But the first Great Awakening was during the 1730s and 1740s. 
Then what we would consider the Great Awakening, the largest maybe of the Great Awakenings, would be the Second Great Awakening. This was another time of religious revival, and it occurred during the late 1700s and even all the way into the middle of the 1800s. So like a 60-year period of great revival and resurgence in the church, where the church was growing and the faith was spreading and people were believing. And it was wonderful. And then the third great awakening came largely out of the first two, but it was, it was the spreading of new denominations and new missions efforts and new evangelism efforts, and it lasted through the first part of the 1900s, about to the time of the Industrial Rev- Revolution and two world wars in which we were out-technologied, if you will, by our adversary. In both wars, the Germans... Uh, technology for weaponry and aircraft far exceeded ours. And we wanted in this industrial revolution as technology is growing, even though that would be very different than what we think of as technology today, uh, the, the question kind of came into the church, how can we, and nobody phrased it this way, it wasn't an overt question, but, but as our American innovative culture creeped into the church, the question was, how can we reverse engineer what happened in the Great Awakenings? What happened preceding these times of revival, and how can we duplicate it in such a way that, that we get the same result? Do you see the danger here? You cannot reverse engineer the Holy Spirit. You cannot manipulate God that way. The spread of the gospel, the growth of the kingdom, it's not as simple as if I do A and B, then God will do C. God sent prophets to the nation of Israel saying, hey, nobody's going to listen. They're going to reject you. There's seven churches in the book of Revelation who were threatened with having their lampstands removed. None of them exist today. God closes churches. He hardens Pharaoh's heart. We can't reverse engineer what the Holy Spirit does. We have to simply be faithful to the mission that God has put us on and trust God that he is working out his good purposes. The reality is, and I made this statement a little while ago, it's not hard to grow a church. All you have to do to grow a church is give people what they want. All you have to do is give people what they want. They'll show up. There's a trap, though, for churches that aren't interested in just giving people what they want. There's a lot of churches that have said, we're not going to give people what they want. We're going to be faithful to God's word. We're going to be faithful to his purposes. We're going to be faithful to preach the whole counsel of God. But we're going to hire professionals to do it. We're going to hire uh, uh, people to do the work of the ministry. You just have to show up and, and watch and participate and consume. We've seen the celebrity culture in the world around us creep into the church. I want to use a, a, an example here that's close to home but is also a little scary for me. Why is it that when you turn on the TV, you see celebrities telling you that you should take a vaccine? I'm not attempting to take a position here on the vaccine. 
I'm just saying, just because you're an actor or an actress doesn't mean you have any ability to tell me whether or not a vaccine is effective, whether it's good for me, whether it's bad for me, whether it's helpful or not helpful. Why is it that TV is filled with celebrities giving us this information instead of doctors? Because we idolize celebrity. I'm listening to a podcast, it's almost done now, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And the reality is that churches will put up with horrific things from their pastors if their pastors have enough celebrity status. And so even churches that want to be faithful to the word of God and the mission of the church and not just give people what they want can fall into this trap of saying, well, we're going to hire the professionals to do the work of the ministry. But pastors aren't supposed to be celebrities. They're supposed to be servants. Servants of God and servants of the church. So we've got this culture that we live in that, that says we, we want the church to grow, we want the kingdom to grow, and we're going to reverse engineer things, and, and we're going to do whatever it takes short of sin. If you haven't heard that phrase, it's, it's used often. We're going to do anything we can short of sin to win people for the kingdom. But I think the Bible here in Ephesians 4 tells us how a church grows. So I return to the question, what makes a church grow? Ultimately, the answer to that is God, but then how does God do that? And I think verse 15 tells us, look with me again at chapter 4, verse 15, uh, or 16, I'm sorry, uh, from whom, that is from Christ, the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies according to the properly measured working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. There's the formula. There's how a church grows. Do you see it? Let me unpack it for you. I I said when I interviewed here that I sentence diagram everything and that the reason I sentence diagram when I preach is because of Paul. And this is the perfect example. The basic structure of a sentence is subject, verb, object. Logan, that's the subject. Throws, that's the verb. A ball, that's the direct object. Now, you can, you can uh, everything, every, so the subject is that first word. It's what we're talking about, right? Everything else in a sentence is called the predicate. Let's go back to elementary school. You, have, you can divide a sentence into two parts. The subject, that is who or what we're talking about, and then the predicate. That is what they're doing or what it is doing or what is being done to it. A subject can be big. In Logan throws the ball, Logan is the subject. But we can, make a sub, we, can, we can make a subject really big, right? Logan, who loves baseball and is tall and strong and ugly. I don't know. You can make up whatever you want. You can say anything you want about me, and we're still just in the subject as you continue to describe me. And until you get to the verb, you don't get to everything else. Logan, tall, loves sports, I don't know, whatever, throws the ball. Throws the ball is is the rest of the subject, or is the rest of the sentence. It is the predicate, not the subject. In case we're thoroughly confused, let me just break this down for you in, in such a way as I can. The subject of this sentence is huge. Let me read you the subject of verse 16. 
The whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies according to the properly measured working of each individual part. That is the subject of verse 16. What's the verb? It's what comes next. Causes the growth. And, and what does it cause the growth of? Of the body. So the sentence in chapter 16, in its most reduced, simple form, is this. The body causes the growth of the body. Or in your translation, it might say, the body makes the body grow. If we really wanted to to diagram that out, it would be, the body makes grow the body. How does the church grow? Or rather, what makes a church grow? The answer? You do. Not me. Not the elders. Not the experts. Not the pastors. God uses the body to make the body grow. It's God who grows it, but he doesn't do it necessarily or even only through or even primarily through It's leaders. The body makes the body grow. How does a church grow? It grows itself. Not a pastor, not a big personality, not paid staff, not celebrity. I want to unpack actually how that works. And so we're going to look today at two ways the body causes itself to grow. But before we do, I want to show you just the context of, uh, of Ephesians chapter 4. Now, we really have to spend some time, if we were going to do this right, understanding the context of Ephesians 1 through 3, but let me just sum up Ephesians 1 through 3 as quickly as I can. Chapter 1 is that God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He has withheld no blessing from you. Chapter 2, uh, the first part of chapter 2 is that you were dead in your sins, but God in Christ made you alive by grace through faith. The rest of chapter 2 is that Christ has torn down every dividing wall between people in the church. That the only division left among people is those outside the church and those inside the church. But it doesn't matter if you are Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor. None of those things matter anymore in God's economy. The only thing that matters is, are you saved or not saved? Are you inside the church or are you outside the church? And then chapter 3 is, uh, is, is Paul's uh, joy, really, in being given the responsibility to preach the mystery of the church, that God has reconciled people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation into one body called the church. And then Paul prays at the end of chapter 3 that, that the church, that you and I, would be filled with spiritual life. And then in chapter 4, we get this big transition to Paul, to Paul telling us how to live all of that out. How do we live in response to that? And the first thing he tells us in verses 1 through 6 is what the church's priority is. What the church's priority is. And the church's priority is unity. Verse 3, being diligent or make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
Notice he doesn't say make the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He just told us in chapter 2 that it is Christ who supplies the church's unity. It is Christ who unifies people inside the church. It is Christ who has secured everything necessary for the church to be unified into one body. We just have to be eager to maintain it. We have to be eager to preserve it. And so the church's priority is unity. It begs the question, does the way you conduct yourself in the church provide help or provide harm in maintaining the unity that Christ bought at the church? Would, would the people who know you in the church say, oh, that person is a peacemaker? They, they care about the unity of the body more than their own preferences. Or would they say that you tend to complain, be dissatisfied, demand your own way? The church's priority is unity. Secondly, Paul shows us uh, the, the gift that, that Christ has given to the church of its leaders. Leaders are not absent from this picture. And I don't think it's just leaders that he's talking about here. But verse 7, to each one of us, not just to the leaders of the church... To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a captive, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. This is Psalm 68, 18. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he descended into the lower parts of the earth? In other words, Christ couldn't ascend back to heaven until he had descended to the earth. So he came down on the earth, he lived as a man, he, he, he uh, lived a perfectly sinless life for us. He died on the cross, bearing the punishment for our sins. He was resurrected three days later, proving he had uh, victoriously conquered sin and death. And then, 40 days later, he, was, he ascended back into heaven. And when he, did, when he did, when he ascended into heaven, he sent 10 days later at Pentecost, 50 days after his crucifixion, he sent the Holy Spirit, who who enables the people in the church to, to exercise these gifts for the good of the body. We're told in 1 Corinthians that, that no gift is given for one's own personal benefit, but that every gift is given for the edification of the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. But, but God has gifted you and me in specific ways to have a function inside the church, inside his body. But he speaks specifically to the church's leaders, verse 11, and he gave some as apostles. I think this is in chronological order. First came the apostles, then the prophets who finished writing the New Testament, then the evangelists as the church spread, and now today he supplies the church with pastor teachers. And all of this is for, notice the purpose of all of this. He doesn't supply the church with leaders so that they will do the work of the ministry. But verse 12 reminds us that the church has been given leaders, pastor teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. My job is not to get paid by you to do the ministry that you don't want to do. My job is to equip you with the word of God so that you can do the work of the ministry. 
When you think the church should be doing something, is your first thought that you need to do something about it or that I do? Is your first thought that you need to serve in some way to provide that or that I do? What is your ministry in the church? How are you using the gifts that God has given you to edify the church for the common good? So first we see the church's priority is unity. Secondly, we see that God's provision for the church is leaders to equip it for the work of ministry. And then in verses 11 through 15, he shows us how the church matures. What do these leaders do? Well, they're pastor teachers, but it's not just leaders who do this. Notice that, that what we do is, is, or what we are to attain, verse 13, is the unity of the faith and the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. We're not to be children in our understanding of God's word. We're not to be children in our understanding of doctrine. Because the world is going to come at us with doctrine. The world is going to come at us with trickery. The world is going to come at us with craftiness. And we don't want to be blown around by those things. We want to be solid and stable. How do we do that? Verse 15. But by, here's how, by speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. That is Christ. And so the, the purpose of all of this, the purpose of your gifting, the purpose of my gifting, the purpose of the unity of the church is to bring believers to maturity, to bring you and I to a mature place in our faith. How do we do that? We speak the truth in love. The question then remains, are you connected well enough to the church to do two things? One to have the word of God spoken into your life. But two, to speak the word of God into the life of others. Are you close enough with the church, with God's people, with the gathering, to be, to be provoked to maturity yourself and to provoke others to maturity? But then we get this formula we see here that, that a church is a unified, gifted, gracious, and truth-filled community. But still, the question remains, how does it grow? And so I want to share with you this morning two ways the body makes the body grow. And they're incredibly simple. Number one, a growing body is a joined body. A growing body is a joined body. Look with me at verse 16. From whom the whole body... Now, let's just stop there and say Paul loves, as does the New Testament and even the Old Testament, loves to speak of God's people as a body. And before we go on, we should ask why. The, the reason is because a body is a unified whole comprised of many parts. Each part is different. Each part serves a different function. Each per, part operates a different way. In pride, we want each part of the body to operate just like I operate or you operate. We go, man, if, if everybody were so lucky as to be gifted like me, 
But isn't this what Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians when he says, if, if the whole body were an eye, where would, this, where would the hearing be? Where would the smell be? Every part of the body is different from the other part, but each part has a function. And a body is is a gathering of parts connected and joined together, each one functioning differently so that the whole thing can operate as it ought. And so the first thing Paul draws out here is that a growing body, a body that causes the growth of the body, is a body that is connected. It is a body that is being joined and held together by what every joint supplies. That idea of being there is not a future tense, that it's something we will become in the future. It's a description that the body is, it is, it is it, its very being, its essence is being joined and held together by what every joint supplies. Now he shifts the imagery here, almost zooms in, if you will, from from a whole body to a part of the body. He, He focuses on the joint or a joint. Let's just take a knee for an example. What is in a knee? There's bone, there's cartilage, there's ligaments and tendons and muscle. And the whole thing, it just can't be a collection of parts. A knee only functions when it's joined together, when, when all the pieces are, are fixed together. Together, The parts only matter in relation to a whole. When my son blew out his knee and went in for surgery and they had ligaments laying on the table next to him as he was going into surgery, those disconnected parts didn't do anything until they were put into his knee. Because because a knee doesn't function when it's disconnected. It has to be all put together. It has to be stuck together. And so Paul tells us that the body makes the body grow when it is connected, when it is, is in contact with one another. In other words, what Paul has led us up to in Ephesians chapter 4 is that God has gifted you in just the way he wants to, for you to be connected in such a way in this church to do spiritual good for others. And you can't do spiritual good for others if you're disconnected. Sadly, many of us approach church as spiritual consumers. If someone asks you, How was church this morning? Is your first thought to think of what you received from the service or or what you gave to the service, to the body of Christ? Here's a challenge, maybe a tough one. When you're prone to complain about the church because it's not being of spiritual benefit for you in the way that you need, ask yourself, are you being of spiritual benefit to it? Because so often when you're not placing yourself in a position to do good to others, you're not placing yourself in a position for others to do good to you either. A church is joined, a church is connected. I know that I have upset people with my insistence that online viewing isn't church. But it's not because I just don't want online stuff. 
It's that because I know the people on the other end of the camera, either end of the camera, can't do spiritual good to one another. They're not joined in the way that God has made us. And when we say, ah, you know what, it's easier just to stay home, it's safer to stay home, and I'm not saying some people don't have a reason to stay home. I think there are some people who do have a reason to stay home. But, uh, you know, it's so much nicer just to get a cup of coffee, stay in my pajamas, sit in my recliner. Nobody has to hear me sing. So much easier. It might be. But when when you do that, you rob yourself and you rob the church of the growth that God wants us, wants to do among us when we're connected. A growing body is a connected body. You can only consume online. You can't give there. Personal growth may come from online viewing in a reduced measure. But the growth of the body does not happen that way. Let me ask you a few questions. Do you walk in the door right before a service and leave right after? What, what would happen if you had a, a cup of coffee and a conversation with someone instead? What would happen if you lingered long enough to talk to somebody and found out how you could pray, not only for them, but with them right there? What if it was normative to see groups of two or three people standing together in the lobby or in the coffee corner praying for one another on a Sunday morning? Are are you plugged into a growth group where, where not the whole body, but a joint of the body can be connected and and do spiritual good for and to one another. Purposefully place yourself in places to connect with other believers in the church because a joined church is a growing church. A growing body is a joined body. And secondly, a growing body is a working body. A growing body is a working body. Look how Paul continues here in verse 16. The church being joined and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the properly measured working of each individual part. It's not just enough to show up. You have to function properly. I ended up in the ER some time ago. My gallbladder had showed up with me. It was not functioning properly. The result was... Not that my gallbladder was giving me a problem, but that my pancreas was. I had pancreatitis. Because a part of my body that was present wasn't functioning according to its purpose. Again, using my son as the analogy, when he tore two ligaments in his knee, they were present. Neither of them was functioning. It caused the whole joint to break down. Each part of the body... Don't think of others here. You, as an individual part of the body, have to not only be connected to the body, you have to be properly functioning within the body. You have to be taking those gifts that Christ has given you by his spirit for the good of the church, for the edification of the church, for the spread of the gospel, and you have to function properly. Parts of the body have to be connected and they have to be working. 
What is your function in the body here at Trinity? Maybe it's something that's not seen. Scripture is clear that the parts of the body that are less seen are the most important. And the parts of the body that are most seen are most important. I'm standing before you here today as a testimony of how unimportant I am. Not how unimportant God's word is, but God moves leaders around in the church. He did so in the New Testament. He does so today. There was another pastor who had been here for a time, and God moved him somewhere else, and God moved me in, and Trinity's still here. And someday God's going to move me out, hopefully by death, and Trinity will still be here, and somebody else will move in. I'm not the most important part of this body. You are. My job isn't to do the work of the ministry. My job is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. I'm replaceable. And if I'm here and this room is empty, what good is that? We're so prone in our celebrity culture to say, hey, the guy up front who's seen on the camera, who's talking a lot, he's the important guy. It's not, that's not how it works in God's economy. What is your function in the body here at Trinity? Are you a consumer or a contributor? Are you connected and around others in the body enough to care for people, to do good, to do ministry with, to serve them? I mean, bottom line, all of this, what Paul is saying here is you need the local church and the local church needs you. And when I say you need the local church and the local church needs you, are those words, Lord, I give you control, still ringing in your ears? Or is that something you want to retain control of? The church grows when it's present. The church grows when it's connected. The church grows when each of the parts is functioning. And when all this is happening, it's not the pastor who makes the body grow. It's the body that makes the body grow. To be fair, in closing, because I'm over time. I don't think Trinity is all about giving people what they want. I don't think Trinity has fallen into that trap. I don't think Trinity is, is saying, hey, we can't talk about hard things because people won't like that. I also don't think Trinity hired me because they wanted a celebrity. It's a good thing. But, I do think there may be a little bit in our history that has called us to fall into the trap of thinking that when ministry needs done, you need to hire the professional. I think the last month without a paid staff worship leader has proven to us the goodness of what happens when the body steps up. That is not a criticism of Paul. That's a praise of the people who have served in his absence. Because it's the body that makes the body grow. It's the body that challenges the body. There's work to do. 
But it's not work for me to do. It's not, it's not work that we hire professionals to do. It's work that you need to do. And that's what we're going to talk about on the 26th and on the 2nd. What is the work of Trinity? What has God placed us for? What are we to do here? There's work to do. I was going to say here, we, we need to tell people about Jesus, but that, would, uh, that might lend us to thinking that other people do. You need to tell people about Jesus. You need to disciple other believers. You need to pass your faith along to the next generation. And I want to share one last thought. There is one thing that I think is important to all those revivals, though. And that is this. Every single one of them was preceded by prayer. It was preceded by prayer. And it was preceded by prayer not because people thought they could engineer some system that would result in the working of the Holy Spirit. It was preceded by prayer because the church hit its knees and said, Lord, we need you to do what we cannot. Each of those revivals was preceded by prayer because the people of God were desperate, understanding that no matter how much they fulfill their role in the church, God has to do something that we cannot do. We can't reverse engineer a revival. Only God can do that. But we can do our part and then prayerfully trust God to do what only he can do. And God loves to work in response to prayer. To that end, we will be here tonight at 5 o'clock for corporate prayer. To pray for the body. To be connected to one another. To care for one another. To ask God to do what only God can do. It will be followed by a potluck where you can also connect with others. Pray with others. For others. Hear what people are doing in the church would highly, highly commend that time to you. Lord, we know from your word that a connected body and a functioning body is a growing body. And so, Lord, let us be free from gimmick. Let us be free from attempts to, um, to manipulate the Holy Spirit by our efforts. And let us simply be willing to Uh, to, to confess that we need the local church because that's how you have made us. The local church needs us because that's how you've made the local church. And then to, to be present, relationally present. To be present and functioning and giving and serving and receiving. And that as we do, that the body would grow, not, not only in terms of maturity, but in terms of the spread of the gospel. Lord, would you reorient our our thinking away from professionalism and towards the reality that every single person in the body of Christ has been gifted exactly as, as they have for the good of the church, for the common good. And let us be dependent upon one another and need one another. And then, Lord, Lord let, us, uh, let us be faithful to do our part, to do what you have called us to do, to be present and connected and functioning. And then, Lord, drive us to prayer in dependence upon you, asking you to do what only you can do. And that as we speak the truth in love to one another, as we connect and as we we do our part, would you give life and growth and health 
to your church? And would you do it for the spread of the gospel and for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.